It got to 68 degrees in Belgrade today, Tuesday, January 15th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. France sends more troops to Mali and the fighting there intensifies. Residents of the country's capital are wondering what comes next. Until recently, you couldn't really get the palpable sense of intervention in Bamako. That has totally changed, and people are now concerned that war could come to Bamako. We'll hear the view from France as well. And later, cartoons show a bleak view of women's status in the Arab world. You know, a a woman in a burqa, and then during Arab Spring, she could have pulls the burqa up so some of her legs are showing and her arms pop out. And now, you know, after Arab Spring, she's back in the full burqa. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. France is upping the ante in Mali. The French government says it's gradually increasing the number of soldiers deployed to the West African nation from 800 to about 2,500. This on top of the five-day-old French airstrike campaign against the Islamist rebels who control northern Mali. At the same time, several West African nations are sending their own troops to Mali. The buildup comes ahead of an expected land operation against the advancing Islamists. Peter Tinti is a freelance journalist. He's in Bamako. Do you have any sense in kind of a general way whether the Islamists are continuing their advance or whether uh, the, the French presence in Mali is helping to push them back? Well, it's clear that the initial bombing campaign uh, after the Islamists had taken the central town of Kona did repel the Islamists and send them scrambling. And there are also reports that they have retreated from various other locations in the north. Now, it may very well be that this is a tactical retreat and not in any way really a decisive victory. Uh, The fact that they took Jabali is concerning, and the French have admitted that they are facing a force that is better trained and better equipped than they anticipated. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, What is the mood in Bamako right now? Are you seeing a flow of people leaving the north where the fighting's been taking place? Fighting has been going on in Mali pre-intervention for months. And so lots of populations have already left the north. Some of the other populations leaving various areas in the north might not have come as far down as Bamako. The general mood in Bamako, however, is one of almost universal approval of the French action. The, The rhetoric that we see in some you know, Western outlets about neocolonialism or this being a uh, crass power grab, that sort of type of rhetoric is really not being said in Bamako except for a few political parties. Yeah, we actually heard yesterday on our program that there are a number of French flags flying in Bamako, which would seem to really support uh, the French presence there. There are indeed. Uh, you can see French flags around, and I've actually been asked twice today if I am French and there was a bit of disappointment when I told them I was American. And as someone who used to live in Bamako, it often used to be vice versa, that people were not as crazy about the French, but very much uh, had nothing but great things to say about Americans. Are you getting a sense in Bamako how the French and the Malian soldiers are actually kind of taking the lead and, and, and getting along and coordinating things? I don't actually know how much coordination there is between the Malian army and the French military in Bamako per se. Uh, I know most of the French troops are currently based in Bamako, 
And uh, it's been reported that they are very much protecting French targets, if you will, the embassy, various locations throughout the city. But on the ground in the north, it's not clear to what extent the French are even really fighting alongside Malians or if, for the most part, it's been just very small special forces operations and mostly French air power. What about the plan for a ground assault? Where would this ground assault likely be? Where would the soldiers come from? Well, there's the convoy of soldiers coming from Ivory Coast, which is south of Mali, up into Bamako. There are reports that the French are uh, moving towards Jabali, which again is that central town that was taken by the Islamists since the campaign began. The fact that the Islamists took that town really raised some alarms because it is so close to, to Bamako, or I should say so much closer than any other location that they control. It's likely that that would be where most of the attention is when it comes to French ground forces. The Malians in Bamako, Peter, what, what are they telling you about their biggest fears? I mean, especially with more soldiers on the ground, now 2,500. Well, it, it only seems like people are just now beginning to realize what intervention means. So until recently, at least for Malians in Bamako, much of this was going on in the abstract. These were airstrikes in places to the far north. Obviously, people were talking to their families and worried about the people they knew in the north. But you couldn't really get the palpable sense of intervention in Bamako. That has totally changed. And people are now really wondering what is going to come to pass. There are some people actually quite concerned that war could come to Bamako. Peter Tinti, a freelance journalist based in Bamako, the Malian capital. Thank you very much for your time. We'll check back in with you uh, in, in the coming days. Thank you. Islamist leaders in Mali have responded to the French military offensive against them by threatening retaliation. The Islamists have vowed to strike back at the heart of France. The world's Jerry Haddon is in Paris, and he says there are few outward signs in the French capital of a heightened security alert. There isn't a giant concern about the Islamist rebels in Mali fulfilling their pledge to strike in the heart of France at the moment here. Today in Paris, on the streets, you're not really seeing any sort of built-up police or military presence. There are, are virtually no protests planned for, uh, for the French military intervention in Mali. Uh, there's no sense at all that, that people are upset about it. Uh, I t- happened to take the train today from Spain, and from the Spanish border all the way to Paris, sitting across from me were two men with military security uniforms on. And at one point... Uh, One of them jumped up and began questioning passengers about an apparently abandoned bag at the end of the car, and it turned out to belong to somebody who was still on the train. But these guys didn't want to comment to me about whether they were on the train specifically because there are worries about attacks on French infrastructure or transportation systems. The worry is over the so-called lone wolf sorts of attacks like the one we saw last year in Toulouse in which seven people were killed. Mm. Those are the kinds of attacks that are very difficult to stop. So this French muscular intervention in Mali isn't exactly reflected in police concerns on the ground in France? I wouldn't say that. I I think it's just not visible. Mm. The French security forces often work without uniforms, undercover. And I'm sure that in the train station, I came into Gare de Lyon this afternoon, one of the main train stations in Paris. It was very difficult to see any particular buildup in police or military presence. But you can be guaranteed that every corner of that station was under surveillance. But uh, my France has been at terror alert level red since 2005, actually. So that's quite high. So, you know, there's already a sense that this, the French intelligence service are working around the clock domestically and overseas to prevent attacks.
Why such an elevated terrorist threat level in France since 2005? And is France really using the color-coded threat level still? Well, you know, France has the largest Muslim population in Europe. And there's always that fear that, uh, you know, any French involvement in efforts to rein in or curb terrorist organizations around the world could produce a homegrown backlash. How is François Hollande perceived in France, generally? He's perceived and has a reputation of being somewhat weak, especially when it comes to foreign affairs. However, since uh, last week's intervention in Mali, has actually seen his popularity rise quite dramatically. There's just a recent poll that's been published of 1,000 people, and 63% actually favored the French intervention in Mali. So that's a big boost for Hollande, who's, as I say, struggled with a reputation for being wishy-washy and weak, especially uh, on foreign affairs. The world's Jerry Haddon in Paris. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Marco. Later in the program, a song for peace from Mali. Singer Fatou Mata Jawara tells us how Mali's talented musicians are singing a national sentiment they don't want jihadists with guns to take over their country. On this side of the Atlantic, disease outbreaks are in the news. Here in the U.S., everyone's talking about the flu epidemic. In Cuba, the concern is over cholera. Cuban officials today confirmed an outbreak in Havana. They say 51 people have been infected in the capital. Cholera is a bacterial infection that can cause severe diarrhea, dehydration, and in some cases, death. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford is in Havana, and the Cuban government, Sarah, had been denying there was this cholera outbreak uh, in Havana, and apparently the first case was detected January 6th. Why did it take the government so long to actually admit there was an outbreak? They hadn't actually denied uh, there was a cholera outbreak, but what they hadn't done was given any concrete information on exactly what was going on, and they'd left it to the rumour mill to do its work. There'd been weeks of rumours here in in Havana on the streets of of a cholera outbreak. Uh, Just last Friday, I called the main hospital, which I had been told was dealing with the cases, and one person there, uh, who wasn't authorised to speak officially, but one person there told me that the hospital uh, wards were all dealing with cholera uh, cases or suspected cholera cases, and said that they were almost all full. And when I called back, another woman told me that there'd been no confirmed cases. So there was an awful lot of confusion. And given that this is a disease which uh, the World Health Organization and all sorts of international bodies uh, say is crucial that there's a lot of public information about to to prevent its spread, Mm. uh, there was a huge lack of official information about it until now. Well, you yourself reported on uh, possible cholera cases ahead of the government announcement today. Do you you think your reporting helped put pressure on the government to admit there was an outbreak? I think uh, certainly we've been asking for information, asking for official confirmation from the health ministry and getting nothing. Uh, What has been happening on the ground is that family doctors have been going door to door and have been checking for symptoms of cholera uh, in their their neighbourhoods. There are a a huge number of doctors in Cuba and they're very well informed about the patients that live in, that they're responsible for in in their particular neighbourhood. And so in this case, we knew that doctors had been been asking about people with sickness and diarrhoea and had been referring them to the the main hospitals here for tests. And I'd spoken to one family, a family of five, including a, a boy of seven, who'd all been sent to hospital and had tested positive for cholera. They were all fine and well. They were back at home a week later. 
Um, but the government was still not confirming that there was an outbreak. So whilst doctors on the ground were doing their work, the health ministry was saying nothing. And uh, I also spoke to the sister of a man who died on January the 6th, which is when this uh, outbreak, we now understand, was first detected. Uh, she told me that the doctors told her that he had cholera. He had had two tests for cholera and both came back positive. So as far as I understand, there is one death in this cholera outbreak, although still the, uh, the health minister is not confirming that officially. Now, those Cuban doctors on the ground presumably uh, helped to trace this outbreak to a food vendor who caught it in the east of the country. Is this outbreak in Havana connected to a previous outbreak in Cuba? It does appear to be. Uh, and I think, you know, perhaps the reason the information is so slow in coming out is that uh, the government, uh, like happened in a previous outbreak last summer in the east of the island, the government likes to wait until it has the situation entirely under control before it actually tells people what's going on. Uh, in a case like uh, cholera, what's absolutely crucial is public information. The public needs to know what's going on. They need to know what measures to take to protect themselves, washing their hands, uh, making sure that food is properly clean and prepared and using uh, perhaps purifying uh, solutions and their water to make sure that they're protected. Here in Cuba, the family doctors were doing that in the particularly affected neighborhoods, but the whole country, the whole of this city, and don't forget how many tourists come to Havana, they knew nothing about it. Mm. So what are the officials, what are officials in Cuba doing to keep the epidemic contained? Does it start with just getting information out? Well, I think that's obviously a, a crucial part of it. And finally, that's, ha- finally that's happened now. Um, every time there's a, there's a confirmed case, um, doctors are going around, they're giving preventative antibiotics to people, a course of antibiotics to everyone who lives nearby in the neighborhood. Um, They're also closing down bars and and cafes and saying that unless they sell sealed bottles of drink or sealed cans or prepacked food, then they're not allowed to sell food and and drink on the streets anymore. So uh, fairly strict uh, measures in place. Uh, I understand that the the, uh, bus station here, you're also having to to have your shoes disinfected as you come in and out of the bus station. Mm. So a lot of measures in place now. Uh, And I think, crucially, finally, the information out there, too. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford in Havana. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Still ahead on the program, crying in court, complaining about prison conditions. These don't sound like the behaviors of KGB spies. We'll fill you in later on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. Hi, Marco Werman. This is The World. The gang rape that sparked so much outrage in India recently took place on a bus in Delhi. And this weekend, there was a report of another gang rape involving a bus, this time in the northern Indian state of Punjab. These cases may be forcing a rethink when it comes to bus security in India, or at least in the city of Gurgaon, just south of Delhi. Officials there are planning to install closed-circuit television cameras on city buses and at some bus stops. The idea is that the cameras would work to deter crime and help in the prosecution of perpetrators. Pampos Raina lives in Gurgaon and works for the New York Times Bureau in Delhi. She says technology alone won't solve any problems. There has to be a setup where people who are, you know, monitoring the situation or the footage that is being recorded on these cameras actually is being monitored 24-7 by trained officials Hasn't the city of Gurgaon built monitors into this proposal? I mean, you know, people who will be the watchers. There is a proposal that, yes, there are going to be people monitoring it. But my concern is the actual implementation, you know. Mm. If there are trained people, there are trained officers who actually monitor the situation and take action 
then this step can make a lot of difference. But if people are, or trained officials are not in adequate numbers to take on this additional task, then that could be a problem. And then it could just be a function of adding another level of security, which probably will not be half as effective as they want it to be. Do any areas around Delhi use CCTVs already? I mean, where it is effective? All the national sort of monuments, all the government buildings, they have CCTV cameras already built in. So there are security officials on duty who are always monitoring the footage that is recorded there. So it is not that this is a new step for Gurgaon or for Delhi or for that matter, any metropolitan city in India or any big city in India. I think the challenge here is to find people, find officers who can actually monitor it constantly, especially in areas where cases of sexual assault have been reported in large numbers. What, what about on the uh, the metro, the underground uh, subway that you regularly use, I understand? Uh, do they have CCTVs there? Yes, I think the surveillance on the metro, uh, the subway is, is pretty good because all the time there is a heavy presence of security officials, police officials. So they seem to be on the guard. But um, the one thing that I would say that they should sort of uh, step up is the presence of female officers. Because if you're traveling late at night and you see male officials, male police officials, that's not very reassuring often. Because uh, as a woman, I don't feel uh, very comfortable or very confident walking up to a policeman and actually talking to him and uh, narrating any any episode of sexual assault which I might have encountered because there's just no understanding and there's no sensitization among the police force to a large extent, especially men. I mean, I don't think they're sensitive to what a woman goes through when uh, she is, you know, she undergoes a situation as happened recently in Delhi, which mm. was the, the gang rape case. Pampush, I gather you don't travel much on the buses around Delhi. Why not? I've taken buses before, but uh, now I wouldn't feel safe on a bus because they're too overcrowded. There's no way that, you know, you can just be on your guard and make sure that there's nobody who's standing next to you and trying to harm you in some way or trying to actually molest you because no matter what, you'll always be sort of pushed. You'll always be, uh, somebody will try to feel you up. Somebody will try to sort of nudge you. And it's always a man. So, so Pamposh, I, I saw another report, unbelievably, uh, of another gang rape that started on a bus uh, this past weekend and continued in a home. And it seems it happens a lot. And apparently the rapists uh, sense some kind of impunity. What would make you ultimately feel safer in Delhi? I think, first of all, there has to be, uh, I think, the police force has to make a concerted effort to sensitize the officials who are on duty. As I said before, um, the you know, whenever a crime of such a nature is committed, a woman who has been victimized, she does not feel comfortable enough uh, walking into a police station and registering the complaint because of the kind of questions that she is asked at the police station, because of the lack of understanding by the police officials of what she might have gone through because they are not sensitive enough to understand uh, the trauma of, you know, a rape victim or a victim who has been sexually assaulted or molested. They just, right now, it just seems that they're very insensitive to such situations. Journalist Pampos Raina, who works in Delhi and regularly takes public transportation, thanks very much for telling us about this plan to put uh, closed-circuit TV on some buses there. Appreciate your time. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. 
The gang rape and death of the young woman in Delhi last month touched off a wave of protests in India and elsewhere and a renewed focus generally on women's rights around the globe. The world's Carol Hills has seen it reflected in political cartoons. And Carol, tell us what you have been seeing. Well, it's interesting. A lot of these cartoons started out as a comment on where women's rights are since Arab Spring. And some of them are quite kind of jaundiced about that, showing, you know, a a woman in a burqa. And then during Arab Spring, she could have pulls the burqa up so some of her legs are showing and her arms pop out. And now, you know, after Arab Spring, she's back in the full burqa. So it started out as a comment on that. But once this horrible gang rape and then eventual death of this woman in Delhi, a lot of them are about women's rights in general, whether it be in Egypt or Saudi Arabia. Um, there's, there's one cartoon from Egypt, and the Sphinx is now a woman in a burqa instead of our lovely Sphinx. Um, another one, an incredible one out of Saudi Arabia or about Saudi Arabia, shows an American woman. She's wearing a cross, so she's a Christian, and she's bearing arms. And so below her, it says the right to bear arms. Next to her is a woman in a burqa, and below her, it says the right to bear arms, and her arms are outside of the burqa, showing skin. So it's a real comment on what kind of rights we're talking about. So that's Saudi Arabia. You had that other cartoon you mentioned from Egypt. Uh, What other parts of the world are these cartoons coming from? Well, interestingly, the ones I mentioned, even the one about Saudi Arabia, was by an Irish cartoonist. Mm. Um, There's a number from Cuban cartoonists and a handful from the Middle East, a Lebanese cartoonist named Hassan Bleibel, and also significantly an Egyptian cartoonist, Doa Aladl, who I've, I've featured on the show, and we've talked about her before. And she consistently does cartoons about gender issues, and she herself has been sued by Islamists about her cartoons. So she's right in the middle of it, but continues to depict it. So it's a very interesting issue. And briefly, Carol, do you tend to see kind of a steady flow, a steady stream of cartoons about women's issues and women's rights uh, as, as you scan the world for cartoons? Or do you see this as kind of a flash in the pan because of this horrific event in India? It's somewhat a flash in the pan, but a cartoonist like Doa Aladl, who is a woman who lives in Egypt, she is consistently addresses gender issues. So it really varies. And an organization, Cartoon Movement, that's a wonderful source of online cartoons, they've commissioned and asked for pitches for cartoons about Arab Spring and gender issues. So they're sort of pitching to cartoonists, and so they're a wonderful source to see these cartoons. You can see all the cartoons we've been talking about, plus more at theworld.org. Carol Hills, thank you. You're welcome, Marco. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, why many of Israel's Arab voters won't be voting in parliamentary elections next week. This activist says that plays right into the hands of those opposed to the rights of Arab Israelis. Well, if you chose not to vote, then it's easy maybe to eliminate your right to vote, maybe to cancel your right to vote. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. New York lawmakers look set to pass the toughest gun control law in America. And tomorrow, President Obama plans to unveil his own proposals to prevent gun violence. 
But even in the wake of the horrific Newtown school shootings, plenty of Americans remain adamantly opposed to new gun legislation. That's often hard for outsiders to understand. Craig Whitney is the author of Living with Guns, a Liberal's Case for the Second Amendment. Whitney served in Vietnam and later spent 44 years as a journalist with The New York Times, retiring as assistant managing editor in 2009. I asked him how, as a foreign correspondent, he would explain the American relationship with guns to people overseas. Well, I tried, but I uh, realized that I didn't really know myself, which is one reason why after I retired, I decided I'd do the research and see if I could come to an understanding myself of why we have this history of guns and why regulation is uh, is such a troublesome issue for so many Americans. What were some of the more interesting reactions you encountered when you, you lived overseas to, to guns in the U.S.? Well, a recent one, we were, my wife and I were in England uh, in September and an old friend of mine who was a fellow Vietnam War correspondent asked me, you know, why do you have this fixation with guns in America? And I explained the Second Amendment recognized a right we had uh, since the earliest colonial days. And we uh, won the Revolutionary War against you because we knew how to use firearms. And he said, well, today you don't have to worry about us, do you? And uh, (laughs) the world is a very different place from what it was in 1791. Well, admittedly, yes, but our Constitution, the whole Constitution was written back then, and uh, the courts do their best to interpret its meaning for us today, but uh, the way to change it is to amend it, and that's a very complicated process, and I don't think it's going to happen to the Second Amendment uh, anytime soon. Right. I mean, the, the the whole idea of going back to, you know, the American Revolution and explaining the, this relationship with guns that goes back to this armed citizenry needing uh, protection against tyranny, do, do people kind of like scratch their heads and go, are you serious? Well, yes, and a, a lot of Americans don't understand that right correctly either, I think. I mean, the people who, who say, well, we need guns to defend ourselves against the federal tyranny. Well, that's not what the founders had in mind was keeping the state's ability to maintain their militias against the possibility of a tyrannical federal government when the new constitution went into effect. That's, that's what... Uh, the right of the people to defend themselves against tyranny means. It does not emphatically not mean what the founders had in mind, uh, the people who hole up in uh, in dens with an arsenal of modern weapons and figure they're going to stand off the 101st Airborne Division when Armageddon comes. That's not what the founders had in mind. Now, you're not an expert, per se, on gun control legislation around around the world, but what's your impression of how these uh, tighter regulations in New York and the tighter ones expected tomorrow at the federal level compare to other places you've lived? Well, the, the gun regulations in New York City, I would say, are comparable in a broad sense to gun regulations as I experienced them in Germany, France, or or England, certainly. And what those regulations do is keep guns out of the hands of as many people as possible. But they don't have, what they don't have is uh, as many guns floating around in the civilian population as, as there are people. And that is our situation. And that accounts, I think, for our much higher than theirs homicide rates and violent crime rates. But it's not the only factor. We're a different society. We're not Britain. We're not France. We're not modern Germany. We have a history of guns, and even their strict gun laws haven't prevented uh, massacres uh, almost as horrible or even worse uh, than Newtown. Uh, Gun laws alone, without other kinds of measures accompanying them, can never eliminate the 
possibility of uh, terrible incidents like uh, Newtown. Craig Whitney, author of Living with Guns, A Liberal's Case for the Second Amendment. Very good to speak with you. Thanks for your thoughts. Okay, thank you. There are lots of guns in Israel, but minds there are not on guns right now. See, there's a parliamentary election in Israel next week. And today, one of the country's leading newspapers made a special plea. It called on Arab citizens of Israel to get out and vote. Arabs make up about 20 percent of the population, and they have disproportionately high rates of poverty and unemployment. But hopes to address those issues through the ballot box are low, and voter turnout among Arab Israelis is falling. The world's Matthew Bell has our story. The pollsters and pundits say the Israeli right has this election in the bag. But the Dime Workers' Party insists there's a new left on the rise in Israel with an Arab woman at the helm. Azma Agbariya Zahalka is a 39-year-old union organizer. She's campaigning in Jaffa, a mixed Arab and Jewish city on Israel's coast. She tells potential voters that Daim, which means support in Arabic, is the only party with Arabs and Jews working together. She tells me their goal is to tap into the energy that unleashed nationwide protests in 2011 for social and economic justice and win seats in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Let's take these demonstrations to the Knesset to say to the government, to the right wing, that people won't change. And they won't change, they will vote down. They will vote not for the same parties that uh, failed. The city of Nazareth is known as the Arab capital of Israel. It's a mixed Christian and Muslim city. In municipal elections here and in other Arab towns, voters turn out in droves. But unlike Hispanics in the U.S., Arab citizens in Israel have never capitalized on their sheer numbers at the national level. A decade ago, nearly 80 percent of Arab voters took part in the national election. This time around, less than 45 percent are expected. Vida Mashur is a newspaper editor from a prominent Nazareth family. She says Jewish candidates don't look after Arab interests, and Arab politicians aren't much better. So for the first time, she'll be sitting out this election. I see that nothing helps. Even, uh, you know, the Arab uh, candidates, they didn't do anything for us. It's a long time ago, the same. What I see is only it's business for themselves, not more. They don't know anything. But part of the problem for Arab political parties is that they can't do much because when it comes right down to it, they operate in the margins of Israel's democracy. It's not just one man, one vote, or one woman, one vote. It's not just about representation in parliament. Mohammed Doroussha directs the Abraham Fund, a nonprofit that promotes coexistence between Israel's Jewish and Arab citizens. It's about participation in power sharing. And that's what the political game in Israel does not offer. It does not offer power sharing for the Arab candidates in the Knesset. Doroussha says some of the blame belongs to the old guard of Arab politicians who've pulled away from working with their Jewish colleagues in government. Anti-Arab racism is another factor, he says. But the upshot is this. If Arab parties aren't part of a coalition, either those in power or those in opposition, they're basically an island unto themselves. Still, Darausha says that doesn't mean they should give up. Even if we don't see the obvious candidate that can tango with us politically in the Jewish community, at least we need to be in the market to form a coalition. We might not get both, but we need to have our product in the market.
The Abraham Fund commissioned a poll on Israel's Arab voters at the start of the campaign season, and it found that many Arab citizens have no faith that Arab lawmakers can get things done in Parliament. Still, Darasha says Arabs who decide not to vote are making a huge mistake. Back in Jaffa, candidate Azma Agbariya Zahalka is hoping to turn frustration and skepticism among Arab voters into votes for her dime party. This is a very good chance for the Arabs and for the Jews to combine together in the same principles, people who want to live in peace and to live in social justice. We will not be able to do it alone, the Arabs alone and the Jews alone. We have to do it together, and time is the chance to do it. Akbariya Zahalka tells me she's already bought some new clothes for her first day in parliament. Then she laughs, as if to suggest that she's well aware of the steep road ahead. None of the mainstream Jewish parties, for example, has talked about working with their Arab counterparts after Election Day. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Jaffa. Asma makes her political pitch on the streets of Jaffa. We've got video at theworld.org. And now we're off to Germany for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for the name of a city in southern Germany. It's the capital of the state of Baden-Württemberg, and it's a setting for a courtroom drama that got underway today. German newspapers call it one of the most spectacular espionage trials since the end of the Cold War. A married couple, identified only by their code names, stand accused of spying on NATO and the EU for decades. When the wife was arrested, she was tapping out a coded radio message to Russia. You don't have to decode that message just yet. Just name the German city where the trial is taking place. We'll find out more about this case involving fake passports and secret radio signals in a few minutes. In the meantime, here's a quick reminder that you can play along with our geotexting game. Just text the secret password. That would be geoquiz, one word, hardly secret. Anyway, text it to ge- text geoquiz to 69866, and we'll slip you some early clues without blowing your cover. Now, American companies have been pushing for Japan to legalize casinos for years, and for good reason. Japan has a huge gambling habit. The country's largest leisure industry revolves around a slot-like game called pachinko. You may have heard of it. It generates hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue each year. Sam Harnett reports from the Japanese city of Kitakyushu. It's about noon on a quiet Sunday in this small industrial city. But at the Zeus pachinko parlor, the room is packed. Cigarette smoke thick, and the sound deafening. It's a sea of jangling machines. They look like like the mutant love children of old school pinball games and futuristic one-armed bandits. Most of the players stuffed in the narrow aisles look like they retired more than a decade ago, but not Takahara Daiki. He's 20 years old, and the line cook thinks he knows how to beat the machine. He says it's fun, and he makes money. And the game is pretty simple. You buy a bunch of small silver balls, and then use a dial to control how fast they shoot through a course of pegs. Get them in the right holes, win more balls. Even Nicolas Cage knows how to play. Oh, hi. I'm Nicolas Cage, and this is a song for you. My favorite things, my favorite things. He did a series of bizarre commercials for Sankyo one of Japan's major pachinko manufacturers. 
The games seem skill-based, but just like Western slots, they're all rigged in the house's favor. Daiki always looks for a hot machine, one that's been paying out a lot. He says he came to Zeus today because it has a new game, one the parlor advertises as easy to win. The game exemplifies recent changes in the industry to snare a broader demographic. It's cheaper to play than standard pachinko and has a more intense video game component. Machines like this one have joysticks, so your freehand can navigate anime minigames, just in case you needed some extra stimulation. Naoko Takiguchi is a sociology professor at Otani University in Kyoto. She runs gambling addiction rehab programs, and she says the video game aspect can heighten pachinko addiction, a problem she claims is widespread in Japan. Government does not acknowledge this is a big problem. The government has recently made some regulatory changes to deal with addiction, most notably requiring the payout system to be less exciting. But Takaguchi says since pachinko is still considered a game, not gambling, the highly addictive nature escapes scrutiny. And she says in Japan, addiction is already a topic that people don't want to admit or even talk about. It takes a long time for people to seek help. It's a shame. Pachinko was first introduced to Japan in the 1920s, but it really took off after World War II, when the country's largest minority group started opening parlors. Sung Yun Lee is an assistant professor of Korean studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He says Koreans flocked to Pachinko because they faced citizenship issues and discrimination that barred them from mainstream businesses. This pachinko industry would have afforded an easier avenue to a livelihood with fewer regulations and so forth. It's a cash industry, of course, so it's shady business. Lee says for years, the Yakuza, Japan's famed mafia, played a crucial role in running and regulating the industry. Now that task has been taken over by the national police, and there have been reports of corruption and nepotism. There's a joke in Japan that the real police pension is a cushy, high-paying job in the pachinko industry. So how has such a shady, addicting game of chance remained legal in a country that bans casinos and online gambling? Well, it all has to do with a small extra step in the cash-out system. Pachinko whiz Takahara Daiki walks me through the trick. When Daiki finishes his session, he trades in the balls he's won for a special prize, a card with his winning information and a little candy box. It's got a picture of Hello Kitty on it. Daiki takes the card and box outside the parlor to a hole in the wall about 10 feet from the entrance. He passes the card through the slot. Then a shadowy figure hands him his winnings and presto. Since the money is obtained through this third-party exchange shop, Pachinko's not technically gambling. Daiki says he thinks of Pachinko as half gambling and half fun. But for his boss, the head chef, it's a different story. Daiki says he goes all the time and often loses most of his paycheck. For The World, I'm Sam Harnett, Kita Kyushu. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The suspense is killing me. Got to find out more now about that middle-aged couple on trial in Germany. They've been accused of spying for the Russians for more than 20 years. Their trial is taking place in the southwestern German city of Stuttgart. Stuttgart is the answer to our geo-quiz. Jörg Deal is covering the trial for Der Spiegel Online. Your magazine, Jörg, is calling this case one of the most spectacular espionage cases since the end of the Cold War. Yes, I think the spectacular thing is that they have been here in Germany for so long. I mean, they entered Germany when there was still the Soviet Union in the late 80s. And they came here as with passports from Austria and took up real normal life. The guy who called himself Andreas Anschlag, he became an engineer and he married his uh, wife who called herself Heidrun. And for all of these years, more than 20 years, they were spies for the Soviet Union and later on for Russia. Right. How can these two Russian agents have been working in Germany for so many years without their cover being blown? Well, that's the $1 million question. Uh, Well, you could say because they were trained well and they probably know um, what to do. If you see them in court, they're very low-key persons. Um, They could be everyone. They could be a bus driver or a teacher. They... He, who calls himself Andreas, is a gray-haired man, not very tall, not sporty. He looks like, yeah, like everybody. And they uh, were silent in court. They listened to the accusations of the general attorney, and they didn't say a word uh, just until the judges started to talk about their daughter. They have one daughter, which is now 21 years old. And that was the moment when the wife began to cry and wept away the tears. And yeah, the other thing you could see in court, the other thing which impressed me was Andreas complaining about imprisonment. He said he he gets too little food and he's, he's hungry in prison. And yeah, that's what happened today in court. Complaining about prison conditions isn't something you'd expect from James Bond. What were they actually? What were they actually spying on? I mean, what did the KGB want to know about post Cold War Germany? Yeah, that's one of the big questions which this trial should answer. Uh, what they now know for sure is they had an informant in the Dutch State Department who sold them information concerning the strategy of NATO and the European Union. And in return, he uh, got money for it, uh, around um, 70,000 euros. But that's just covering three years. We don't know for sure what they did the rest of the 22 years they have been in Germany. Have any nice, juicy, interesting details about how they exchanged information emerged yet in the trial? Yeah, they met uh, their informant in the Netherlands. They exchanged hundreds of papers and they stored them in holes, uh, which they digged into the ground in, I don't know, some woods in the the former capital of uh, Western Germany, Bonn. Mm. It is said that agents from the Russian embassy from Berlin uh, came over and digged these papers out of the woods. So it was said today in court. The the most fascinating question is who were the sources, the informants they paid, and what did they do? We are expecting some information from the German intelligence service and um, are looking forward to learn a little bit more about uh, Russian spy rings in Germany. Jörg Deal, you're covering the trial for Der Spiegel Online, and it sounds like you'll be posted in Stuttgart for a while. Yeah, (laughs) 
I'm stuck in Stuttgart, you could say. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jorg. Good to speak with you. You're welcome. Thank you. As we told you earlier, the conflict in Mali has grown more intense in the past five days. This past weekend in New York, I had the chance to speak with a Malian singer who had landed in the city from the capital, Bamako, just three days earlier. Fatumata Jawara. We profiled her on the program before. The 30-year-old singer is the youngest emerging star from a nation of star-studded artists on the international music scene. And like most of her musical colleagues back home right now, music takes a backseat to the daily concerns of war. French troops and warplanes are pushing against Islamist fighters who are, it seems, trying to close in on the capital, Bamako. West African troops are also poised to get their boots on the ground in Mali to help out. Malian citizens are scared, is what Fatumata Jawara told me. On savait qu'il y avait un nouveau corps au Mali. Mais je pense que depuis deux jours, on a compris que c'était vraiment sérieux. We knew there was a new Islamist group in Mali, but I think that we've only realized how serious the situation is for a couple of days now. Things have really changed. The energy of people in Bamako has changed. And since in Africa, men always fare better than women, my worry was that men would let the situation unfold and let this new Islamist group get to the north and would collaborate with them. Because what this group stands for would not impact men much, but it would affect women tremendously. And as Fatumata Jawara explained, it's not as if Mali's women have their own spokesperson to talk to the Islamist fighters. With their political system all but collapsed as well, Malians don't even have non-military role models to boost their confidence, which is why many Malians are looking for some guidance from a group of people they respect, the country's musicians. La population nous regarde. The Malian people look to us. They have lost hope in politics, but music has always brought hope in Mali. Music has always been strong and spiritual and has had a very important role in the country. So when it comes to the current situation, people are looking up to musicians for a sense of direction. So for a month prior to coming to New York, Fatumata Jawara helped spearhead a project in Bamako with some of Mali's greatest artists. The song Maliko brought together musicians like kora player Tumani Jabate, guitarist and singer-songwriter Habib Kwate, and legendary female vocalist Umu Sangare. Jawara told me the song makes two requests, a plea for peace and a plea for the emancipation of women in Mali. Because as she told me earlier, if there is jihad in their country, men will always be able to strike compromises with other men. It will be a lot harder for women. But Jawara says Malians are determined not to see their country conquered by jihadists. We've seen songs for peace recorded before. It's hard to say what kind of impact they actually have. But Jawara believes this song can help. It says, never have I seen such desolation. They want to impose Sharia law on us. Tell the North that our Mali is one nation, indivisible. You're hearing the broadcast debut of the song Maliko right now. That's it for our program today. By the way, see my Instagram pic of Fatumata Jawara and the rest of my shots from Global Fest over the weekend in New York City. I'm on Twitter, at Marco Werman, from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH. Thanks for listening. Maliko, I'm going to go to the hospital.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International